This sermon is called We Are Wild and So Is God. I preached it at the Wesley Foundation at the University of Iowa on March 25, 2014. I began by showing the students there a video about a playground called The Land in Wales. Basically, The Land is a big fenced-in junkyard where kids are free to play however they want. There are used tires, old pallets, broken pieces of furniture, even things for kids to start with, start fires with. Most kids go to the land alone. There are a few adult supervisors who are paid to make sure kids don't really hurt themselves, but for the most part, play is hands-off. Kids are free to do whatever they want. In her article called The Overprotected Kid, Hannah Rosen talks about the land and also about this huge cultural shift that's happened over the last 30 years away from unsupervised play. She talks about how in the 1940s adventure playgrounds were a little more common and at that time the prevalent view was that kids needed to be tough, self-sufficient, and able to solve problems on their own. They were afterward, after all in the midst of a war and they wanted to prepare kids for the realities of the world. These days things are much much different. Consider these facts that Hannah lists in her article. Even though women work much more now than they did in the 1970s, both mothers and fathers spend much more time now with their kids than they used to. Kids used to spend most of their day unsupervised by adults, wandering around the neighborhood with other kids. Now, many middle-class kids are under near-constant adult supervision. In the 1970s, actions like walking your third grader to school, forbidding your children from playing in the street, or having your child go down a slide in your lap were viewed as overprotective or even paranoid. Now they're routine. In 1971, 80% of third graders walked to school alone. In 1990, that figure was down to 9%, and now it's most likely lower. Mrs. Rosen talks about the, why, the reasons for this shift. Partly it's due to changes in playground design and safety after an outbreak of lawsuits in the late 70s and 80s where parents sued parks departments and schools for injuries that happened to their children on the playground. It also has to do with the increased media attention that happened around missing and abducted children in the 1980s. I don't know about you, but I've heard many people, parents my age, that won't let their kids wander around the neighborhood. They say, it's not like when we were kids. It's a different world out there. Here's the thing. In her article, she talks about how cases of abduction by strangers are actually very, very rare, and they haven't increased at all since the 1970s. It's not any more dangerous today to let your kids wander than it was back then. Also, safer playgrounds haven't done much at all to reduce playground injuries. They've only gone down marginally. Instead, consider these other results. Some studies show that kids who miss out on risky play end up less able to judge when an activity is truly dangerous. 
They're also worse at independent problem solving and navigating trickier social situations on their own without parental guidance. One study cited test results from the Torrance Tests of Creative Thinking, which found that American kids over the last decade or more have tested as less emotionally expressive, less energetic, less talkative and verbally expressive, less humorous, less imaginative, less unconventional, less lively and passionate, less perceptive, less apt to connect seemingly irrelevant things, less synthesizing, and less likely to see things from a different angle. About the only upside from this shift away from unsupervised play is that parents and kids have closer relationships than they did in the 1970s. Now I can tell you from my own experience, having grown up in the late 70s and early 80s before this shift happened, that I had a lot of unsupervised play. Until the summer of my fifth year, I lived in small towns, and I remember my sister and I started riding bikes when we were four. By five, we roamed around our little town on those bikes unsupervised. During the summer of my fifth year, we moved to Des Moines, which is a much bigger city in Iowa. My parents' attitudes, though, did not change much. We had to be back for supper, and then again before dark. We spent a lot of our time riding bikes, walking creeks, carving spears with pocket knives, shooting BB guns, climbing trees, buildings like the church next door. We built forts. We lit plenty of fires. And only rarely did we get caught by an adult. The ultimate experience of that was when we moved down to my parents' land, which we simply called the farm down in southern Iowa. At first we were kind of bored because we didn't have TV and we didn't have any friends. But then we got over it. Our dad kicked us out of the house and we started roaming. When we started school we made other friends, other country kids who we would roam around with. I remember walking the creek for miles with my friends, fishing and swimming in my uncle's pond. No adults anywhere nearby and definitely no cell phones at the time. I remember one time a friend came to visit me from Des Moines and we walked the creek that started in my parents' farm for so long that we got lost. We ended up several miles away. After working our way out through a cornfield, we found a road and went to a farmer's house, a stranger's house, to call home so my parents could come pick us up. At the time, I considered this freedom to roam and be wild as a natural right. Not that I put it in those words. It was just the normal state of being. I learned from that experience how to set my own limits. I wasn't as wild as a lot of my friends, but I wasn't too tame either. Really, the only time my parents placed limits on that freedom was when we lived for a while in a rough part of Des Moines on the east side. I remember my sister and I had to go to an after-school program while my parents were at work. We hated it. I was normally a pretty well-behaved kid, but one time I was so fed up with being there that I spent the whole afternoon making life hell for my teacher, to the point where she called my mom and broke down on the phone crying to her. It's a bad idea to box kids in and shelter them too much. I think the same thing is true with adults. 
We do it to ourselves, though, with work or school, or simply these days to our addiction, with our addiction to electronic screens. It makes us physically, emotionally, and spiritually unhealthy, I think. I know that's what happens to me and my kids. That's part of the reason why my wife and I still make regular visits to my parents' farm in southern Iowa, and recently we purchased some land down there for ourselves as well. Every time I drive down there to visit my parents or walk our land, I feel the tension begin to lift from my body. Even as soon as we leave city limits or turn off the interstate onto a two-lane highway. When we get down there, my kids usually join their cousins and they take off for adventure. We may not see them again for hours. One time I remember after it had been a little too long, I went to go look for my older daughter and her cousin Simon. While the other kids had stopped walking the creek to climb and play on a cliff, Simon and Anissa just kept walking. They'd been gone for a while, so I jogged down the creek after them, and when I finally caught up to him, I learned that the reason they hadn't turned back was because Simon had the idea that the creek flowed in a circle, and if they just kept walking, they would end up at the beginning again. It's also good for Emmy and I to be down there. We get dirty, worn out from all the walking, scratched by thorns, and bit by mosquitoes. We go to sleep earlier. We cook food over a fire. We live with fewer things in a much bigger outdoor space. We slow down, we unplug, and we reconnect to old rhythms. Sometimes we hate to come back. And one day we probably won't come back. That's what happened to Wendell Berry, the author I want to introduce you to today. He grew up in rural Kentucky, and after getting his B.A. and M.A. at the University of Kentucky, he went to Stanford for a fellowship. Then he went on to France and to teach in New York, before finally coming back to Kentucky, where he teaches creative writing. In 1965, he bought a farm not far from his parents and began a dual career of writing and farming. I first heard about Wendell Berry when a campus minister named David Fry gave Emmy and I a book of his poetry as a wedding gift. Then, when I moved back to Iowa City a few years later, a friend of mine was graduating from Luther with an art degree. We went up to Decorah to hear her senior show, and she had this duo there playing live music. I really, really liked their music, and I found out the name of their band was Jaber Crow. Several months later, Emmy happened to see a book called Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry, so she checked it out from the library. It was one of the best books I've ever read. Like any great book, I fell in love with some of the characters, and I wished I could spend more time in that world. Then I found out that for over 30 years, Wendell Berry had been writing about those characters in the fictional town of Port William, Kentucky. There was this whole treasure trove of stories and novels. I dove in and I read every one I could get my hands on. Reading Wendell Berry stories gives me the same feeling as I get when I travel to southern Iowa. I slow down, I get lost in those older rhythms, and I spend more time contemplating the world. I also learn just how much we've lost over the last century as we've grown more and more sheltered by the artificial world 
we continue to create for ourselves. Barry also writes essays from time to time, and while they're not quite as entertaining as his fiction, they are incredibly insightful. Here's an excerpt from an essay he wrote on Christianity and creation. In this section, he talks about the consequences of believing in dualism, where God resides in religion and churches, while the rest of the world is considered profane or secular. Idolatry always reduces to the worship of something made with hands, something confined within the terms of human work and human comprehension. Thus Solomon and St. Paul both insisted upon the largeness and the at-largeness of God, setting him free, so to speak, from ideas about him. He is not to be fenced in under human control like some domestic creature. He is the wildest being in existence. The presence of his spirit in our wildness, <clears throat> our oneness with the wilderness of creation. That is why subduing the things of nature to human purposes is so dangerous, and why it so often results in evil, in separation and desecration. It is why poets of our tradition so often have given nature the role not only of mother or grandmother, but of the highest earthly teacher and judge, a figure of mystery and great power. Jesus' own specifications for the church have nothing at all to do with masonry and carpentry, but only with people. Jesus' church is where two or three are gathered together in my name. End quote. I like that Wendell Berry calls God wild, and that he connects our own wildness with God. I agree with him that the organized church has often seen its role as the bringer of civilization and order, that we confuse our own limited mental and physical constructs as accurate and whole depictions of an unbounded God. I also think this goes beyond religion, that more and more we tie ourselves to synthetic things, and we distance ourselves from a wild reality that our souls have called home for millions of years. We're sheltering ourselves both literally and figuratively, and the more sheltered we are, the less intelligent we become. Like those kids who have never fallen from a tree, burned their eyes with smoke, or wrestled another in the dirt. We don't understand the world. We magnify small risks to our comfort and security, while we don't even see the dangers that will shackle us to a life of meaningless toil. I don't want that to happen to me. And I don't want it to happen to you either. So my prayer and my message for tonight is that you don't forget your wild side. And by that I don't mean what passes for wildness on a college campus. Well maybe you should do a little bit of that stuff, but mostly I'm talking about not being boxed in by fear or convention. Go out of town and take a look at the stars on a dark night. Take a long walk in the woods without your phone. Sleep on the grass down by the river. Camp in a tent and cook over a fire. Swim in a lake without worrying what your body looks like. Go to the orchard, eat apples off the tree, and walk through the creek. In the very least, read a book by Wendell Berry. And while you're at it, while you're immersed in that activity, take a minute to ask yourself, 
what you can live without and also what you can't. And that's when you might feel God nudging you towards something new. Wherever this wild God decides to lead you, I pray that you'll follow. Amen.